Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Dr. John Hammond. I'm always a little bit uh, embarrassed when I'm announced as the preacher for the day. I'm not a preacher. I'm a storyteller because that's the way Christ taught. And uh, I also need to confess, don't be too impressed by a PhD, I was the worst student in school you could believe possible. Do you want to know how to develop true humility? Let your younger brother get three years ahead of you in high school. I was that poor, and I think there was a literature yet to be written on late mental developers, and if you ask my children, they say they're still waiting for it to happen with me. Um, and uh, I was pretty late in starting university. I was 30, and uh, it was hard work because I had a full-time job and a wife and uh, three children, and uh, I finally got to my honours year, and uh, I had to work extra hard because you got to do well when you're doing honours, and I ended up doing philosophy. Well, let me tell you, folks, if you want to do philosophy, it really helps if you're nuts. And uh, we had some real nutters amongst our professors, and uh, one whose name was Godfrey Tanner. I think that this is a highly apocryphal story, because I think I've heard it about a few other professors of, of philosophy. But apparently he set an exam once, uh, and there were 400 students, and there was one question, had three hours to do it. The question only had one word. That was why. So these poor students sat there with their burrows and scratched for, on the paper for three hours on the question of why. The student who got the highest mark walked out after five minutes and handed in his paper. It had two words on it. Why not? <laughs> so it was into this class that I was launched. And uh, I would have to say, um, in a university, you find a fairly godless bunch of people. Uh, and let me tell you, if you think you are smart, when you go to university, you're going to meet people who are a lot smarter than you. And when you're a student and your professor does not believe uh, that there is a God and everybody believes a professor because of their sheer smartness and the fact that they are a professor, you're, really got, you, you, you're, you're on the back foot. So I was in this class, it was only a small class of about a dozen. And uh, he discovered, our professor, to his absolute delight in week two, there was actually somebody in the class who believed that there was a God. And he stood in front of me and he said, are you a tertiary, really a tertiary student? Yes. And you come all the way through university? Yes. And you actually believe that there is a God? Yes. Right. This is fantastic. 
He didn't even ask me. He said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. Three weeks from now, we're going to have a debate. And I will give you 45 minutes to prove to the class that there will be a God, that there is a God. And I'm going to bring up a professor from Macquarie University, and she hates God, and she is going to make mincemeat out of you. So Big Mouth says, well, if she hates God, that means that she believes there is a God. He said, just save your smart words for three weeks. <laughs> Folks, that was the longest and the most frightening three weeks of my life. I had a dilemma because I knew that if I got up in front of a bunch of university students, before I forget, on the night, there wasn't 12, there were 300. <laughs> they all turned up like the Colosseum to watch the massacre <laughs> and to watch the Christian being eaten by a dragon. And uh, I knew that if I stood up in front of a group of university students and said, last night when I looked at the sunset, my heart rose within me as I saw the master artist had painted on the sky. Folks, I'd be laughed off campus. I was really, really scared. I prepared a series of arguments. The great day arrived. It was pouring with rain. And it flooded. And by two in the afternoon, a little bit of hope was coming within me. Maybe the bridges had been washed out. <laughs> but you know, it stopped raining at about four o'clock. Six o'clock, I went into the university. It was to start at seven. You know, have you ever experienced pure terror? I was as nervous as I had ever been in my life because my professor had really built up. He told everybody, come to the lecture theatre, whatever it was, 7 o'clock, it was a Tuesday night. It's going to be sport, was the word he used. Well, I was there and I was sitting right down the front and uh, my professor was with me. I was trying to imagine what my opponent looked like. Long teeth, pointy ears, <laughs> flame coming out of her nostrils. And it was a female professor. And at uh, five to seven, she hadn't turned up. Uh, I think, oh boy, I hope the car blew up. And... Uh, <laughs> Seven o'clock, he went off and made a few, a few phone calls and he came back at ten past. He was as white as a sheet. He sat down next to me. I said, what's the matter? He said, she's not coming. Really? He said, she took her own life this morning. You know, I've often thought, what was going through her mind on that day? He said to me, you've got an hour and a half. So he had to stand up and tell everybody that I was on my own and uh, that the person coming uh, was no longer with us. And then, without any by your leave, he said, don't feel free to ask questions when he's finished. Thanks. So I got up. Boy, had I been praying. And I, uh, I did start by saying... I want to tell you one thing. God is God. 
And God is too big to be put under a microscope. He made us. I said, I'm going to present to you, and just please give me the courtesy of saying it. And uh, because what I say is from the bottom of my heart, I have grown up this way, and my parents and grandparents before me. I said, I will present a personal story of my family, and then I will uh, prevent uh, present evidence from the scripture that there is a God and then I'll use logic because this is a class in philosophy and so I start to tell the story of my family my father was a doctor and I have to say I believe this is true Pastor Barron the very first Seventh-day Adventist you ever met was my father he was an orthopedic surgeon and uh, this is many years before that we were living in Kempsey in New South Wales and we're going back now over 70 years. Amazingly, my son is now a doctor in Kempsey and he has patients who are my father's patients uh, 70 years before. It's just amazing how the wheel goes around. And uh, he was doing well. You know, doctors do have a habit of doing quite well. I'm the wrong sort of doctor, I must point out. Anyhow, um, he got a phone call one day from the president of the church. And the phone call went like this. uh, We'd like you to be a missionary in Jamaica. And uh, my father's answer was very much to the point. He said, no, I've got a wife, I've got three boys, I've got a new house and a new car. The timing is bad. Folk, you never say that to God. And uh, a few weeks later, he said to my mother, if ever we got another call, I believe we should take it. Now, you've got to be very careful whether something's a miracle or not, because the phone rang 30 minutes later, and it was the same president, and he said, will you go to Jamaica? I always thought that was a miracle, but it turned out that my father's mother, my grandmother, discovered that my father had this conversation with mum and she rang the president who promptly rang dad. <laughs> so it was just, it was a miracle in a way. Anyhow, he said, yes, we'll go. Two weeks before we sailed, another phone call, and <clears throat> this one had a lot of humming and hawing in it. And they said, well, uh, we are wondering uh, if... Uh, do you mind? Uh, Dad said, get on with it. Uh, <laughs> would you mind going to Malaya instead? What's well, now Malaysia? And Dad said, oh, I suppose so. Doesn't matter. And uh, hung up. <clears throat> then he rang up and he said, why? And there was more ahs and hummings and goings on. And, uh, well, uh, there's a vacancy Obviously, Dad said, uh, what's going on? Well, the doctor there has left. In a hurry? Yes. Why? Well, uh, more ahs and ums. A war has broken out. And they need a doctor there. And so Dad said, anything else you want to tell me? Well, you're going to have to be very careful of snakes because this was just after the war. The infrastructure had broken down and a lot of people were dying snake bite from cobras thank you very much and uh, 
So we packed and we arrived in um, Penang in Malaya and on the 4th of October 1949. I was four, so you can do your maths. And uh, we moved into our house at 22 Brown Road. Now we've been warned about the snakes. There are cobras and then there are king cobras. King cobra is a hammer drive. I've seen the I've seen a king cobra in in a zoo this long. That is a mighty long poisonous snake, and their temper is about as bad. The first morning, Dad stepped out the back door barefoot and put his foot on the back of a 13-foot hammer drive. It wriggled. So did Dad. He slammed that door so fast he nearly left his foot outside and he came inside and he said to my mother, this is our first morning in the mission field, don't unpack. He said, there's a plane going back to Singapore and then Sydney tomorrow night and the Hammond family is going to be on it. <laughs> Sat down and had breakfast. And that's one of my early memories. He wasn't a person to have shaking hands, but his hands were trembling. <clears throat> And then he said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to put God to the test. I'm going to get my Bible and I'm just going to open it up without looking anywhere. I'm going to put my thumb inside. And if there is not a message from God, a distinct message, we'll go home. Fair enough? It's a big ask. Well, he prayed, he opened his Bible and put his thumb in and under his thumb was a text that I don't need to look up because it became our family's favourite text. Luke chapter 10 and verse 19. He'd never read it before. Listen to this. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. I said to mum, I think we need to stay. <laughs> Folk, we stayed there for 12 years. And in the 12 years, we killed 12 cobras in the bathroom alone. Now, let's have a look at some pictures. There's my mum and dad. And dad died 20 years ago this last week. My parents have both passed away. And uh, that was actually taken in Penang within a few weeks of arriving. And uh, we had a good life. We enjoyed it there. Um, I know what it's like uh, to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night when you're a seven-year-old boy. There was a shower on the floor and a hole in the wall. And the snakes used to love to go and lie on the cool floor. You imagine a seven-year-old boy going to the bathroom in the middle of the night, opens the door, flips on the light, and there, lying curled up on the floor, ah, a great big snake. Oh. <laughs> you went that far off your seat. <laughs> so are the rest of you. Now remember, I'm talking to 300 university students. I didn't do that. And one student said, what a coincidence. And I said, listen, there's over a million words in the Bible. 
You'll never convince anybody in my family that that wasn't providential. And I said, let me finish. Well, uh, I think I scared the projector. Where's, where do I point? Oh, here we are. Well, let's go back one. Yeah, I'm the good-looking kid with the blonde hair. And that was outside our house. It was a trishore driver. That was the last time he smiled for two days because we pinched his thing and took off with it. And uh, we've just lost the picture. Something's happening. And uh, there we are again. But, you know, uh, there were snakes all over the place. We were having lunch one day. Dad was at the hospital doing an operation. And... Uh, that's a king cobra. You don't mess with them. Came into the, into the dining room because we had his baby in a bottle. My mother was very tolerant. And we cleared off outside the house and rang the hospital. And Dad said to Anita, let's just keep the patient ticking over. I'm going home for a few minutes. Came home and got rid of the snake. Went back and finished the operation. But that's only half the story. There was a war on... And uh, all the Europeans in the island had this type of car. It, was a, it looks like a uh, Mercury. And it's got armor plate right around, armor plate on the windows, an armor plated uh, flap, and a little slit on the windscreen because they'd be ambushed. But you know, they still got them. These were popular with the rubber planters. They chop a tree down in front on a jungle trail, or chop a tree down behind, and wait. No air conditioning in those days, and sooner or later you'd have to get out, and they'd shoot you. And uh, what do we have? We didn't even have an armor-plated Morris Oxford. That's Dad backing off, or going on to, going over to do some work in the village, and... Uh, we would often see bandits in the jungle as we drove along and they had a favourite way of dealing with people. They would knock on your door at uh, one o'clock in the morning. You'd open the door and our neighbours across the road shot dead this way. Knock on the door, open the door, bang, you're dead. And we got the knock on the door one morning in the middle of the night. And Dad got up, and uh, we all had action stations under the beds in various cupboards, and he stood behind a post, the door, and he said in English, Who is it? He said in Malay, Barapa Itu. He said it in Chinese. He said it in Tamil. And finally a voice said, Doctor, we have a sick man outside. Well, every doctor's taken the Hippocratic Oath to help somebody who needs it. And Dad opened the door, and there was two men standing there. He said, where's the sick man? I was in the car. And Dad often said that that walk out the driveway to the car he thought was going to be the last walk of his life. He said he could hardly make one foot go in front of the other at the thought of being shot dead. But there was a sick man in the car, very, very sick. And I've even got his photo. And it was a communist terrorist 
We didn't know. Anybody here from Malaysia? If I say the name Chin Ping, does that mean anything to you? He was the chief of all communist terrorists in Southeast Asia. He had a huge price on his head. He had a ruptured appendix. And my dad said, why didn't you take him to the government hospital? They said, go away and come back in the morning. He said, quickly take him to the hospital. He kept him in the hospital for three weeks. He spoke to him about Christ. And he went away. And you know, 11 years later, the day before we left the country, God opened the windows of heaven just to give us a little glimpse of his ability to protect you. There was a knock on the door. The war was finished. It was safe. And there was a Chinese man there. And I answered the door. He said, is Dr. Hammond there? I said, no. He went back to Australia a few days ago. He said, is your mother there? I said, yes. Can I come in? Light your pen. Come in. And uh, he sat down and he asked my mother if she could remember this patient. She couldn't. And he held out a piece of paper, about A5. I was astonished. There was a picture of us standing in front of our car, P5104. And there was a message in Malay, in, in, which I could read, and in Chinese. And it said, this is the Hammond family. They live at 22 Brown Road. This is the number of their car. Under no circumstances are they ever to be harmed. They are under my protection, signed Jinping. And so it was the day before we left, we were able to see how God had protected us because a lot of people died. Um, you like my Rolls Royce? I wish. Because that was the exact model that the governor used to ride in. And there it is, Sir Henry Gurney, standing in front of his Silver Wraith 1951 Rolls Royce. And in that picture, he only has one hour to live. Because he was coming down Fraser Hill after attending a ceremony, and his car was ambushed by 52 bullet holes. And uh, he was killed. He stepped out of the car and walked towards the ambush to protect his wife. And uh, I found the car in, in Malaysia not too long ago. And it was patched up, but looking very tawdry. And uh, he died. And uh, 27th of June, sorry, uh, 6th of October, 1951. At that stage, they were advising all... Europeans to leave the country. And Dad said, no, we will stay because we have a protection order. And I said, who has written your protection order? And he said, here it is. Behold, I give you power to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will in any way hurt you. Remember, I'm talking to university students. And so I said, now I will move to proof. And of course, if you are giving a, uh, a lecture and you are trying to prove that the Bible is accurate, where do you go? Well, you better know where we go. Daniel chapter 2. 
And I said in Daniel chapter 2, and I went through the text, thousands of years ago, God inspired the prophet Daniel to the exact events and the epochs in this world's history. And we started with the head of gold, Babylon. And the student had obviously been to Sabbath school once or twice, put his hand up and he said, of course, that's so easy to explain. It was all written after it happened. But this time I was getting a bit bolder and I said, you listen to me. The head of gold, he was there. He was alive for part of the, the chest of silver. But I said he was dead by the time he got down to Greece and he was very dead by the time he got to Rome and extra dead by the time he got to the modern era. The feet of iron and clay. And I said there is nobody in this lecture theatre who can gainsay that passage from scripture that was written thousands of years ago and furthermore the Bible says when Christ would be born, where he would be born, how he would be born and how he would die well you see I was getting a bit stirred up maybe I was preaching and they were very quiet I spent some time on that I said I challenge anybody to prove to me, we know when that was written, we have the historical records. I said, now, I'm going to try you on some logic. I said, you're all university students and I want you to be honest because I'm going to use logic. I said, how many of you believe that there are forces outside of the human body that we cannot explain? Be honest. And their hands started to go up. And I said, good to have established that point. How many of you believe that some of these forces are not very good for us? Because I knew that the university was rife with spiritualism and Ouija boards and all these sorts of things at this stage. And some people have been caught up and had disastrous lives. And hands went up, not quite as many. Now I said, here comes the logic. We have established together, I was using courtroom techniques, we have established together that there are forces that are around us. We have also established that there are some forces that might not necessarily be good for us. Logic is it also proper to assume that there might be some forces around that might be good for us? Well, they hadn't thought of that. I said, don't run away. Logic says yes. And I said, isn't it equal, po equally possible that there might be a battle going on? In a blaze of originality, I said, a great controversy. That went over their head. And that there is going to be a climactic battle between good and evil. And I said, there is a lot of evil and there is a lot of evil on our university campus. Well, they were very quiet. And I said, look, in my short experience in life, you're on a university campus 
And look, folks, I believe if I had gone to university before I was 30, I would have been caught up in all of this. I think God failed me in school so I could get a few life experiences and some sort of a grounding. I admire anybody here who's a university student and has not lost their faith. And that tells me that God has a grip on your life and a plan for you, and you need to follow it. And I said, in the university, there are wolves in sheep's clothing whose main object in life is to deceive, and the devil goes around and he wishes to devour. I think there's a few beautiful shots here. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. I like that one. I said, here we are in planet Earth, and there is a battle raging around us. There is a God, and there is an evil force, Lucifer. And the battle is climactic. And God has given his only son to save us. You know, I finished at that point. I'd like to say that people crowded around me afterwards and say that was fantastic, and can I have Bible studies? I never heard a thing. But many, many times since then, I have wondered about that poor professor. What had happened in her life? We have scripture. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit. And God speaks to us. God has spoken to me. Eleven years ago, I broke my neck and my back. I was in a coma for five weeks and not expected to live. And the day I came out of the coma, God spoke to me. It's not the voice that you hear now. I cannot describe it, but I know God spoke to me. And he said, your work is not yet finished. Folks, that's why I'm here today. I want to preach for God until I've got no breath left to do it. And you know, we have scripture and it is beautiful. It has written 66 books. And there is a consistency about it that reveals us our salvation. And we ignore what is in there at our peril, absolute peril. I was on the train this morning or this afternoon, and I got out my Bible to check on something. And people are fascinated when you get a Bible out on the train, let me tell you. They either lean the other way as though you've got some dread disease or they crowd over to see what you're doing. And uh, one of you to introduce something to somebody. Doesn't he look dignified? His name was uh, Cloudsley Chevelle. I'd call him Shovel, like Mrs. Bucket. And he was Admiral of the Fleet. And he was bringing his fleet of five ships of the line, two and a half thousand sailors on board, and they were sailing back to Plymouth, and they had been out at sea. And 
you've got to have some idea of how powerful these people are. Here he goes, and there was his fleet. Well, he was heading for this spot here. He was heading for Plymouth, and he was sailing, he thought, like that. But instead, he was going towards the, the Silly Isles, S-C-I-L-L-Y, and not just the Silly Isles, a particular part called the Gillstone Rock. And this picture is taken from space. And there it is. <coughs> now on board was a young sailor, below decks, uneducated. And he was a native of the Silly Isles. He knew the weather. He knew the patterns. And he'd been keeping his own log. Uh, you would be punished by hanging if you were caught trying to do navigation. Only the ship's navigators were allowed to navigate. And he became more convinced. You know, I lived in Fiji for a number of years and I, I had lots of, we had students from 19 different uh, countries from the college where I was principal. And I went out in a boat once with an old Samoan man. And we were lost. At least I thought we were lost. He was quite confident. We were out of sight of land in just an aluminium tinny and an outboard. And he asked us all to be quiet. And he went to the front of the boat. He lay across the boat. And he put his hand in the water. And he just felt. And then he said, that way. He knew exactly where we were. And this young man realized that in the space of a few minutes, um, the fleet would hit the Gilstone Rock. He was in a dilemma. He had the truth. But what was he going to do? He knew the penalty. Just to get up on the quarter deck where the Admiral stood would be hard enough on itself. He came up on deck and he took his moment and he rushed up to the Admiral and said, Sir Cloudsley, we are about to hit the rocks, the Gillstone rocks. He was instantly taken and hung from the yardarm. And five minutes after that, the whole fleet hit the Gillstone rocks. Two and a half thousand soldiers died. That's where they buried Sir Cloudsley for a little while, and then they dug him up and uh, left a marker there. And uh, if you go to Westminster Abbey, you will see his uh, effigy there, or his statue there in the thing, in, in the Abbey. You know, we have a guide, and we tend to forget that we are carrying the pathway to heaven, the information that we need. And as university students, as adults, as whatever you do, we have this sure word of God. It is our guide. It is our navigation. And I just praise the Lord as I've been able to give you this little testimony today. I know God loves us. I know he loves me. And I know that every one of you is so important. More than that, he has a life plan for every person sitting here today. He knew what he wanted for you 
before the night of your conception. And so often we go by a different path, but God in his infinite wisdom and patience just brings us back. I had things in my life that I'm not terribly proud of, and I know that God has had to nudge me back. But just believe that God loves you and he has a plan for you. He is real. He gave his son. And you'd better say amen when I say this. He's coming again. Amen. Let me pray. Dear Father, as we bow before you, we want to acknowledge that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. We are standing in the presence of the ultimate being in this universe. And yet you love us so much, you said, please call me Father. You think about us every day. And the one thing you want more than anything else is to restore that intimate relationship that you once had with Adam and Eve. And this time we will be part of that. And we just say this afternoon, Jesus, we love you. Amen. This message was made available by Fountain in the City. For more resources like this, visit fountaininthecity.com.au.
That was Fountain View Academy singing If You But Trust in God to Guide You. Coming up next, Look for the Waymarks by the King's Heralds. Look for the waymarks as you journey on. Look for the waymarks passing one by one. Down through the ages past the kingdom's four. Where are we standing? Look the waymarks o'er. Look for the waymarks, the great prophetic waymarks. Down through the ages past the kingdom's four. Look for the waymarks, the great prophetic waymarks. The journey's almost o'er. First the Babylonian kingdom ruled the world. Then Medo-Persia's banners were unfurled. And after Greece held universal sway, Rome seized the scepter. Where are we today? Down in the feet of iron and of clay, we can divide it soon to pass away. What will the next great glorious drama be? Christ and his coming and eternity. Look for the waymarks, the great prophetic waymarks down through the ages past the kingdom's four. Look for the waymarks, the great prophetic waymarks, the journey's almost To our series, You're Not Alone, in which Alan Sonter, for many years a missionary educator in the islands of the South Pacific, tells stories that help us to know that God is always watching over us, wherever we are. This episode is entitled, God Can Help You Fix Anything. At the beginning of 1957, I was asked to head up the Seventh-day Adventist school on the island of Abimama in the Gilbert Islands, which are now called Kitapas. And my wife and I arrived at the island on a small inter-island trading boat. We were met by a big muscular Tongan with a broad smile who introduced himself as Henry Moala, second in charge at the school. After we collected a few suitcases and hand luggage, Henry led the way to a beat-up old Morris truck. We threw our bags on the back and Henry hoisted himself into the driver's seat while my wife and I squeezed in on the passenger side. 
we were then off to the school, about three kilometres away. We would return to the ship later for the heavy boxes and crates. We hadn't gone far when Henry said, this truck has no brakes. I try not to use it any more than I have to, but I'm very nervous driving it. We'd almost reached the school when there was a sound like a gunshot. The old truck lurched to an unsteady stop. We all piled out to find that the driver's side front tyre had blown out, making a long tear in the side wall. The tyres were old and perished from the tropical heat, and we had no spare on board. We walked the short distance to the school and took a jack back to the truck. After removing the wheel, we rolled it back to the school workshop, such as it was, an open thatch roof structure, and I carefully extracted the tube. A 15 centimetre gash along the side made me think that tube had ended its useful life. But we don't have another inner tube, Henry groaned. How are we going to get your things from the wharf? At this point, it looked as though God would need to intervene in some unusual way if we were to complete the transfer of our boxes from the wharf to the school. So I prayed, Lord, you know this problem, and would you please show us what to do now? Immediately, my mind went back to a time in the late 1930s when, as a small boy, I'd been taken by my parents from Nelson to Dunedin in South New Zealand in an old Model T Ford motor caravan. We had so many blowouts that eventually my father had no spare tube and we were stranded miles from any garage with no way to get help. My father then collected dried grass from beside the road and stuffed the tyre as full as he could get it. Back on the wheel, that stuffed tyre took us quite some distance until we came to a garage. The only problem I recall about the incident was that the grass tended to move about in the tyre, so we had a quite bumpy ride. Now the Lord brought this experience back to my memory and also pointed out that there were plenty of coconut husks all around us, left over from the copra-making activities that go on all the time in Abamama. Coconut husks are the raw material that koya is made from and are tough and fibrous. Let's collect some coconut husks, I suggested to Henry. We can stuff them into one of these old tires and that should get us at least a load or two from the wharf. Henry was a bit uncertain about this new kind of inner tube, but he and some of the schoolboys soon had a pile of husks waiting for their new role as inner tube for the truck. I stuffed the husks in as tightly as I could and then fitted the tyre back on the rim. We took the repaired wheel back to the truck, fitted it and let the jack down. There were whoops of delight all around when the tyre looked just as good as the others. I thanked God for the idea and we were ready to go again. Henry confided that he wasn't too comfortable about driving the truck, especially without brakes, so he insisted that I take over the task. Fortunately, Abamama is a coral atoll and the road is perfectly flat. Fortunately also, the handbrake did work reasonably well. So I cautiously started out on my first drive in the old truck. During the afternoon, we managed to bring the remainder of the cargo from the ship 
But by the time we brought the last load, the coconut husks had moved around in the tyre, making the ride very bumpy indeed. It was obvious that husks were not a permanent solution to our problem. So there were two problems to fix, the brakes and the inner tube. I asked God for help and began looking around for some way of fixing the tube. There was an old, torn inner tube in the shed and a partly used tube of Bostic contact glue. But could a 15 centimetre gash be repaired with Bostic? I cut a large patch from the old tube and glued it over the gash in the damaged one. It seemed to stick fairly well, so we found an old tyre that seemed to be in better shape than the rest and fitted the repaired inner tube and tyre onto the rim. Cautiously, we pumped it up to see whether it would hold. It did, and served without trouble until we were able to get a new tube. Then I turned my attention to the brakes. I should say here that my previous experience at mechanical work consisted of nothing more than repairing my push bike and of replacing one rocker cover gasket in my Morris Minor in New Zealand over a year earlier. But after asking God to help, I tackled the brakes. When I dismantled the master cylinder, I found the trouble to be that the rubber washer was so worn that it allowed the fluid to leak past. Replacement parts would have to come by ship from Melbourne, and that would take many weeks. Looking carefully at the worn rubber part, I noticed that if its outer edges could be held firmly against the wall of the cylinder, the fluid might not be able to escape. So I found the lid of a tin can and cut it into a disc, with fingers protruding all around the circumference. It was made big enough to fit inside the rubber washer, with the fingers pushing the outer edges of the washer against the cylinder wall. This device was then inserted into the cylinder and the whole thing reassembled. And it worked. We had brakes again. I'm sure that God gives us the ideas we need to fix things when we ask him to. Sometime after the tube and brake incident, I decided that the school needed a lawnmower. The soil of the atolls is almost pure coral sand, but there is a little humus, and if it rains often enough, which happens periodically, a coarse grass does grow over the ground. It looks rather untidy if not trimmed, and the islanders cut it with long machetes. But I thought the school students' time could be better used in other ways if we had a lawnmower. So I took stock of our resources. There were some pieces of angle iron and sheet metal lying around that could be made into a frame. In the workshop were a couple of old wartime Briggs and Stratton motors, about five horsepower I guessed. The bearings in one were worn and useless, but I hoped the other could be made to run again. There was an old circular saw spindle on the floor that could be pressed into service to mount a mower blade on, and a pair of old steel concrete mixer wheels, plus a pair of discarded baby pram wheels which could make the contraption mobile. Finally, a leaf from a jeep spring drilled in the centre 
could be mounted on the saw spindle as a blade. So to work I went, and the result was, believe it or not, a lawnmower, not unlike one of those old hater mowers that cut many an acre of lawn around the Pacific Islands in the days before Victor, Honda and Rover got into the act. Well, the mower did a noble task for some time, but one day, disaster struck. I was busy in the workshop while a student was using the lawnmower some 50 metres or so away. Suddenly, from the direction of the mower came a sharp metallic screech. I thought that the blade had hit some concrete or a piece of metal and expected to hear the mower start up again. But soon the student came into the workshop and said, the mower has run out of petrol and it won't start. I knew the mower couldn't be out of petrol as it had been filled only a few minutes earlier. So I went to investigate. I fitted the starting rope to the pulley and pulled firmly, expecting to feel the resistance of the compression. But the pulley turned freely. Something was seriously wrong. The motor was soon in the workshop, and when it was opened, it was indeed a sorry sight. The big end bearing had overheated, let go, and the inertia of the spinning blade kept the crankshaft turning as the connecting rod and piston fell downwards. The result was that the piston and rod had become a mass of small pieces of metal in the bottom of the engine. Inquiries revealed that the student had been holding the mower on an angle by pushing down on the handles and the oil had not reached the big end as it should. What to do now? Again, a prayer to the God who is always there brought the needed help. After cleaning up the engine, I could see that the damage had been limited to the piston and connecting rod, but incredibly, the crank pin was not badly scored. An examination of the spare engine revealed that its piston and connecting rod were in good condition, but there was no big end bearing shell in place. My colleague, the Pacific Islands veteran of many years experience, Walter Ferris, looked at the bearing and said, I've got a Jeep bearing shell that I think I can cut to fit that bearing. Let me see what I can do. So it was that an hour or so later, Walter Ferris came in with two halves of a bearing shell that fitted pretty well around the crank of the Briggs motor. Jeep bearings were much bigger in diameter than Briggs big ends, and these cut-down shells had been formed into the tighter curve by hammering them into the seats. What was needed now was some way of grinding the two halves of the shell into shape against the crank pin so that the correct clearance could be made. Valve grinding paste would be no good because the particles were too big, creating too much clearance. But God was there again with the needed ideas. Why not toothpaste? The particles are fine enough. It would just take patience. So I spread toothpaste on the faces of the shell, set it in place over the crank pin and gently tightened the bolts until I felt resistance. Then I worked the rod back and forth to grind in the shell. This process was repeated again and again until the bolts could be tightened right up without any binding of the shell on the pin. 
and the motor gave many months of trouble-free service. I was not alone out on that small atoll, and whoever or wherever you are right now, you're not alone either. God is just a prayer away, and he's waiting for you to realise your need of him and call to him for help. You've been listening to our series, You're Not Alone. Stories told by Alan Sonter that help us to know that God is always watching over us, wherever we are. If you have any comments or questions, send an email to radio at 3avianaustralia.org.au or give us a call within Australia on 02-4973-3456. May God bless you and remember, you are not alone. You have been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.